but important announcement for today. One of the ways that we're trying to continue to grow smaller as we grow bigger as a church um, is by making use of technology, specifically something online called The City. Um, we've been pushing that out through the smaller communities, so the 70 or 80 of you who are in those smaller, smaller communities have already been linked through to doing that. Starting today, we're now able to have worked the kinks out and able to invite everybody who would say, Seven Mile Road is my community. God is knitting me together in the life of that church to get on to the city so that communication can just happen in a lot more effective and much deeper ways. So over your left shoulder, unless you're sitting there over your right shoulder, is a big sign that says City Desk. The sound booth in the back is going to be turned into a desk with two or three computers on it. Yeah, that one. Um, before you leave today, you want to stop there for about 45 to 60 seconds to just catch up with somebody at a computer and say, here's who I am, how do I get, I get on the city, and they will be able to make that process happen in about 45 or 60 seconds for you. And the downstream benefit to that is, is huge, as those who have been sharing that together can, can say, just in awareness of what's going on, uh, prayerfulness for each other in deeper ways, and then the smaller communities that you're a part of, having a place to do life together, uh, augmented by that kind of way. Um, so that's back there. That's right after the service. It's not a 15-minute uh, timeshare thing where we're going to put you in a really small room with no windows and, and make you buy. No, it's, it's one minute. You can uh, get an email address connected there and then ask any other questions that you might have. I'd love to see you do that because there's so many new names and faces and so many beautiful things that God is doing. And that's one way that all the names and all the faces can be um, connectable to each other in bigger and deeper ways. Remember our commitment. God can grow us as, as big as he wants, but we are not seeking to be big. We're seeking to be what we would call the smallest growing church ever. So as this happens, this happens deeper at the same time. Uh, That'll be a part of helping us to do that with you and for others who desperately need a good, healthy church and desperately need within the framework of that big, healthy church to be in relationship with people by name on a daily and a weekly basis. This is going to continue to help us get there. So don't leave without doing that today. Okay, you know how our service rolls now. The height of our service is the, the table of Christ where we feast with Jesus, receiving his grace on our way there the Word of God is throughout, and specifically in this chunk of time, God, through His Word and through a preacher, a pastor, gets to speak to us, to shape us and teach us and correct us and inspire us and help us. And so we are actively participating now as hearers, seeking to hear God's Word and to respond well to it. Psalm 50, and Joey gets the, the privilege to be able to do that for us today. everybody. Wow, that's serious. Um, today I get to preach on, actually to finish up our psalm series. Um, we've been up and down on a roller coaster. We've been at the bottom of a well. We've, we felt abandoned in the streets. We felt we were in the place of jackals. And we were crying out to God saying, don't hide your face. And then we were in a place of refuge where we were safe and sound in the hands of God where he was for us, where he was with us, 
where he fought for us. Then we are in Psalm 42, where we were longing for God, where we were saying to our soul, why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. Then we are in Psalm 45, just adoring the king, celebrating the king in all his splendor and his majesty. Psalm 47, we were just excited. We were actually clapping our hands, which is unbelievable in this church, which they give out citations for hand claps. <laughs> we were clapping our hands, and we were shouting for joy before a glorious and a deserving God. In Psalm 48, we were meditating on the city of God. And finally, we come to Psalm 50, which they give me, which is a hard hitter. You know, you go by other churches, it's Jesus is my BFF on Palm Sunday. And now we've got, we stand in before a fiery, tempestuous, holy God. He's calling us to repent and come back to him. And so definitely we've been through these psalms and these songs of lament and praise and thanksgiving. This is definitely a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of instruction where God is coming as a loving and merciful God and he's calling us to repent. So the question is, what is repentance? Repentance is turning away from our sin and turning back to God. It's very important that we define this. It's not just feeling sorry. I know so many people who feel sorry about how they're living or what they're doing, but you never see the transformation of the gospel in their life. We want the kind of repentance that's talked about in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10, which produces a godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. We don't want to just feel sorry. We want to tremble before a holy God who transform our, transforms our heart by his grace. So that's what I want us to see today. You might be a little scared thinking, I might do a few sniffles today. Matt said I had to be a mass general if I wasn't going to preach. I'm on antibiotics. And Matt said, unless you're a mass general, you've got to preach. So there might be a few coughs and a few sniffles today. <clears throat> so I want us to understand this because sometimes people can look at repentance and they can really get scared. And they can say, oh, the preacher or the word of God wants to condemn me. But I want us to see why God wants us to repent. He wants us to repent so we come back to him. Not so he can vent in anger and just get upset and just get overwhelmed with anger, just so we feel bad about being the sinful creatures we are, but so, so we repent and we come back to him and we become better worshipers of him. Martin Luther, in the first of his 95 thesis, said a believer's life should be one of repentance. Repentance should be a constant theme of your life. You know why? Because you are a constant sinner. I know for me, I'm constantly sinning, so I'm constantly repenting. This is so important because you will not grow in your prayer life or in your faith or be transformed and sanctified unless you are repenting. Because that's when you see the progression. That's when you see the growth. Because God's allowed to take you and change you through the power of his Holy Spirit. We don't want to come out of here today like, I'm going to change. I heard the water of God. I'm going to change. We've all tried that. That doesn't work. What we want to do is say, God is changing me and respond to that correction, and allow him to transform our life. Okay? So let's just do a little background <clears throat> on this psalm. It was written by Asaph, and this is very important to know. He wrote Psalms 50, 78, and 83. His psalms were used in the days of Hezekiah to restore, restore true worship. 
So you can see that God was working through him as the human author. He was breathing his words through him to call his people to repentance, to bring his people back to him. You see that as a constant theme in Asaph's Psalms. He was the Levitical choir leader that was there when the ark was returned back to Jerusalem. He had the symbols. He was the Pentecostal in the group just playing the symbols. When the ark was returned back there. So you see God doing this and what he's trying to teach us through this, he's trying to bring us back to true worship. That's what repentance is doing. It's making us better worshipers of God. Worship is an end in itself. When we are fully satisfied and have our joy in God and when he's glorified above all. You will never be more happy or more satisfied than you are when you are worshiping God with a pure heart. When you will worship God from a repentant heart, when you have gratitude towards an awesome God. This was written around 1000 BC. That was around the time of King David. So Israel would have been experiencing great victories by the hand of King David. They would have seen great things. And you know what happens when great things are going on? We tend to forget God sometimes. So I encourage you today as we meditate on this, this portion of scripture that we don't forget God when things are going well. And we're not just calling out to him when we're at the bottom of the well, but every day we have gratitude towards a loving and a merciful father who is good enough to us that he gives us his word like this so that we can repent and come back into his arms. So let's just read verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion... The perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. So I just want to look at that first verse real quick. Anyone who's been in a court knows that when the judge enters the room, they give the all rise for the respectable judge, Judy, or the respectable whoever. They, the honorable. They tell you who's entering the room, and there's a certain amount of honor and respect that is given. The psalmist is getting us ready for this judge who is entering the earth. And the first word he uses to get, as a name of God, is the mighty one. Now, I'm no Hebrew scholar, and I'm sure that some people in here will shoot me down, but I can read a commentary. And the Hebrew word for mighty one is El, which conveys God's might, his strength, his omnipotence, his authority. This is very important to understand in our culture today, where we don't want anyone in authority over us. <coughs> In, the, in my early 20s, I got a speeding ticket. If you knew me or ever drove with me, you'd be like, how the heck did this guy get a speeding ticket? Because I am the slowest driver on the East Coast. My wife is constantly mad at me because of how, sly, how slow I drive. My foot's on the gas, off the gas. I'm talking to her. I'm thinking about 500,000 other things but driving. One time when we were dating, I got pulled over, and you will not believe this, for going too slow on Route 1. I swear to goodness, my wife will testify. 
We just started dating, so I was captivated by her beauty, and I was just driving off Route 1. And I was like, what am I getting pulled over? The guy said, you were going too slow. You were causing problems on Route 1. So I got called in the court for a speeding ticket. And so on, on the ticket, it said that he estimated my speed. Somehow, they get me in 10-mile-per-hour zones going 50 miles per hour. I swear to goodness, this happened to me twice in my early 20s. And so I envisioned, envisioned myself going into this courtroom, standing before the judge. And I, I thought I was going to be like Matt Locke. I was going to roll in there like he didn't have a radar gun. He estimated this, and then everyone would get up and cheer, and I'd kind of just walk out of the place. It didn't happen like that. I realized that I was not in authority in that courtroom. I realized that that judge had all the authority. So it came time for me to speak, <coughs> and I got up with my Lynn attitude and said, did he have a radar gun? That judge looked at me like, who the heck do you think you are? I forget what he said, but I got the gist of it. Sit down, young man. I'm in control in this court. I sat down and said, wow, I'm not an authority in this courtroom. He makes the call. And this is something I want to understand. God is an authority in our life. He's in God, authority in all the earth. He has the right to call us to repentance. He has the right to confront us with scripture. He is the one who has the right to do that. The next one, God, Elohim, conveys God, you know, it tells us that God is the self-existent one. He should be the sole object of our worship. So a little easy system I have about who to worship and what to worship, you don't worship anything that's uncreated. Tree doesn't make the cut. Sun doesn't make the cut. A person doesn't make the cut. But the uncreated one, God, should be the sole object of our worship. He deserves all the praise, all the glory for who he is. The next one, the Lord or Jehovah. This tells us that God's dominion and his reign extends over all the earth. So he's not just the God and the judge of Massachusetts or Malden as I speak, but his reign extends over all the earth, over every creature, over all peoples, over all tribes, over every nation, over everyone who's ever existed, over everyone who exists now and who will exist. His reign is over all the earth. Everyone is under his jurisdiction. That's important to understand. Because now we can get ready to respond properly because we know what judge has just entered the room. And who is he getting ready to speak to? He is speaking to us, to God's people. He's not right now going to speak to people who have not been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and who know God. He's speaking to those who take his covenant on their lips. He's speaking to us. So this really should get us ready to respond because God has come as the judge and he's ready to speak to us. Now the psalm, he uses some pretty violent imagery for God here. And it's so funny because since I got to Seven Mile Road, I've used dictionary.com more in the last six months than the last 10 years of my life. So we'll be in pastor's meeting, and Matt was reading Psalm 15, and he went, Tempest, whoa. And Justin was like, yeah. And you know Brent, he just, there's five new words every day with that brother. And so I'm like, oh, here we go. These dudes are using words again. I have no idea what they're talking about. So I had to look up what Tempest means, or I found out that day 
Because growing up, being born in Cambridge, going to school in East Boston in kindergarten, being in Brookline and Lynn, there was never one person in the crew who there was a violent storm went, man, that thing was tempestuous. <laughs> I never heard that word before in my life. And so the Lord, a tempest, just for those who don't know, who are in my arena, is a violent and a raging storm. And so God is, the psalmist is painting this picture of God coming with fire before him in a powerful storm around him, a violent storm around him. <clears throat> now, fire is always used to show us justice. It's always an emblem of justice. And tempest is used as a token of God's overwhelming power. So once again, we see an omnipotent God a powerful God. And everyone knows, even with the storms, a few weeks ago, that storm we got, you see what a storm can do. It was knocking trees over. I saw telephone poles were coming down. I took my daughters in the backyard to go on the swings, and there was just a tree down in my backyard I didn't even realize, because storms, storms are so powerful. And this is what he's trying to get us to understand. This judge who brings justice, who is all-powerful, has something to say. So we want to know what has provoked God to anger. As a child of God, as a member of his covenant community, I want to know why is my God provoked to anger? I'm in awe right now. I'm in fear. I want to hear what my Lord has to say. Let's read verses 7 through 15. Hear, <coughs> O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So I just want us to talk a little about this. Some people might be asking, what's this all killing bulls and sacrifices and burning stuff talk? So let's give a brief explanation of this. You see, ever since Genesis 4, that as an act of worship, the people of God would sacrifice unto God. You see it with Cain and Abel in um, Genesis 4. You see it with Noah after the flood. You see it with Abraham. You see in Leviticus 1 through 7 that Moses instituted the sacrificial system. And God instituted this system for his people to make a way for us to atone for our sins. God is a holy God, therefore he cannot have fellowship with a sinful people without there being atonement made. And so the people would regularly bring their offerings to God for their sin, for guilt. They would even bring them sometimes to celebrate and just to be thankful for their God. They would have regular times they could do it, but you also could give a free will offering that was spontaneous. So he was not rebuking them for this. 
He said, your sacrifices are before me. You're bringing your um, burnt offerings. You're performing your outward expressions of worship. But this charge I have against you, you're not bringing me your heart. And I love the fact that we serve a God that wants our heart. That he doesn't just want outward expressions of worship or dead rituals, but he wants our heart. He's pursued us to have relationship with us. And this is important to understand that what God is looking for here because it will help thrust us into worship. And so this, he says here, and it's important to understand that pagan cultures would sacrifice their gods thinking they fed them. So they would bring bulls, they would bring lambs, and sometimes even human sacrifices, like they were appeasing God. And one of our greatest failures is thinking that God is like one of us. That he needs food, or he needs water, or he needs clothing or shelter. God is self-sufficient. And this is what he's telling us. I'm not one, like one of these pagan dead gods. I am the living God. And if I wanted a bull, I would go and get a bull. I reign over all the earth. I have allowed you to come into covenant with me. Bring me your heart. Offer to me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So what are two things that you really should have thrust the people of God at that time into worship and should really bring us into worship today. Number one, who God is should cause us to respond in worship. Like he said in the first verse, he is the mighty one. He is the creator. He is over all the earth. He reigns over all. He loves us. He cares for us. He's been merciful to us. That should cause our heart because of who he is, to respond in worship. The second thing is that he has made a way to atone for our sins. I'm so thankful that we serve a loving God who did not leave us in our sin, but made a way for his people to come to him and to fellowship with him and to honor him and to glorify him. I couldn't imagine a world without a way to atone for our sins. That's hell. That's a nightmare. But we have the cross. He has made a way for us to come to him, and he made a way for the people of Israel at that time. That's a loving, caring, compassionate God. And this is an important thing for us to know. I don't think God died for us to come an hour and worship him every week. He died so that we could worship him every day of our life, with every breath, with every act. It would be an act of worship unto God. And in Romans 12:1, and this will help us in the context of today, because we're no more making atoning sacrifices. Thank God, because I, I can't be killing bulls. I hit a bone or something. I'm just not that type of guy. Like a Brent will skin him, throw him up. I just can't do that stuff. I'm thankful that he has been the final sacrifice. That we no more have to bring our sacrifices to atone for our sins because they have been atoned for. And you know that, what that should do? 
That should thrust us into a life of worship where we respond to the gospel every day with gratitude, with thanksgiving. And we should apply this to our prayer life. Our prayer life should be filled with thanksgiving, with praise. We should offer up a sacrifice of praise unto God. The two biggest things I do in my prayer life is repent and thank God for who he is. Repent and thank. And Matt put up a blog this week. We sat in a pastor's meeting from 7 to 11. And you wouldn't come out of there saying, well, that was an act of worship. But it was an act of worship because we were directing our life in obedience to glorify the name of Jesus. We were working. So when you're loving your family, when you're loving your husband or wife, when you're working with all your heart to glorify the name of Jesus, that is an act of worship. So many times we want to appease God with outward expressions. And you see this sometimes, not here so much, but people will show up on Palm Sunday or Easter as if they're appeasing God. I'll be witnessing to someone, and this guy cracks me up. You ever met the altar boy? I'm preaching about Jesus. I was an altar boy. What does that mean? Oh, you're all right. My fault. I shouldn't preach the gospel. You're an altar boy. You're all right. We think that these outward expressions appease God. We think that if we come to church for an hour a week, God is satisfied. Okay, I satisfy God. I don't have to give him my heart. I satisfy God. I don't have to be obedient. I satisfy God. I don't have to repent for my sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's not saying don't do the outward expression of worship. He's saying combine the outward expression of worship with the inward gratitude of your heart. And that equals worship that is pleasing unto God. Now let's go on to read verses 16 through 21. This is where it gets pretty harsh. But to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. (coughs) You give your mouth Free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay charge before you. Mark this, then you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. Pretty harsh language. But a Lord who loves you will discipline you. And will speak harshly to you sometimes in order to bring you back into sweet fellowship with him. And so the first thing that really hit me (coughs) is I'm not keeping silent anymore. And I think sometimes we mistake God's long-suffering and his patience for his approval. We think that because God has not struck us down with lightning, that he approves of our sin. We think that he is like one of us who makes light of sin and laughs at sin. He is not like one of us. He is holy. He is far above. He cannot even be involved in sin. And he's letting us know, do not think he approves of sin because he is being patient with us. He hates sin. And he he talks about some specific sins here. For you hate discipline. And so I ask you to ask yourself right now, are you a person who hates discipline? Do you hate messages like this? Where God confronts us on our sin? 
Do you hate him and just want to get to the, the grace part, even though this still is God's grace? Just tell me how good it is while I sin, not about changing from my sin. Do you love correction from your father who loves you? Or do you hate discipline from God, from his word, from his spirit, from those who are in authority over you? Do you hate correction? Because if you're a person who hates correction, you will never grow. You will stump the process of sanctification if you hate correction. We should be quick to take the correction of our Lord because he loves us and repent and turn back to him. Secondly, he says, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. What he's saying is we make light of sin. <clears throat> we really do nowadays. We make light of sin. We see someone steal something. Oh, that's no big deal. Or we made light of sexual immorality like it's no problem. Oh, we're sinners. It's a different day. It's a different time. God hates sin. And they should be able to tell the difference between us and those who don't know God. There should be no line. There should be a line where people can understand that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Where they feel uncomfortable even around you living in sin sometimes. This is important to understand. Do not laugh at sin. This is tough with the media today where we constantly have sin before us. We can make light of it. God wants us to turn away from our sin and turn back to him. He then goes on to the sins of the tongue. We give our mouth free reign to evil. Where we gossip. How many of us spend our life gossiping? Wasting our words, talking about others, accusing others, complaining when we should be glorifying, praising God, praying, and interceding for each other. He's saying these sins should not be among the people of God. We should repent of these sins and come back to him. Watch the sins of your tongue. Think about the conversations you have. And if you find that you are gossiping, you find that you are prone to slander, repent of that and use your words to glorify the almighty God. Then God gives us one last threat in 22. He says, mark this, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Okay, that's scary coming from God. Let's be straight up. If we really take this as God's word, and I, I think... I really understood it when I went to another one of Asaph's psalms in Psalm 78, 32 through 37. He said, I killed them so that they would come back to me. God will sometimes tear us apart so that we will repent and come back to him. He will sometimes crush us so we will repent and come back to him. And this is God's grace in itself. I want you to see, even when he's threatening us, it's his grace calling out to us, come back to me. So that anyone who's living in habitual sin today, I say repent before God tears you apart to bring you back to himself. Why wait till you get crushed? Why not repent now and come to a wonderful, merciful Father? Repentance is a gift. Then the Lord finally gives us one last instruction. He says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So since our focus 
is to shape our prayer life in this series, and we're closing today. I encourage you to let repentance be a major theme of your prayer life so that you will constantly be understanding that God is casting your sin as far as the east is from the west. He does not want us to live in condemnation but come back to a loving, holy God. And he wants us to be giving him thanks constantly in our prayer life, just thanking him for who he is and what he has done on the cross for us, that Jesus has made a way to atone for our sins, and that should thrust our hearts, our lives, into lives of worship. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're just thankful. We are so thankful that you are a loving God who confronts us with truth because you love us. I pray that we as your body would be a repentant people, that we would be quick to repent of our sins and turn back to you, that we would be quick to thank you for who you are and what you have done for us, Lord. You have been so good to us, Father. I pray that we would know that we don't have to live in condemnation, but that you forgive us and that you have atoned for our sins and that we are pure and blameless in your sight. We thank you for your spirit. We just thank you for everything you are, Father. Amen.